Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking to the wonderful Michaela Thomas. Michaela is a clinical psychologist, couples therapist, and founder of The Thomas Connection. Michaela helps striving busy people find balance over burnout so they can live, love, and work in a more meaningful way. She's on a mission to show couples how to stay compassionate and connected even when feeling under pressure, using her online courses, workshops, and therapy. And she's also the author of the new book, The Lasting Connection, out now. So in this episode, I have to resist the urge to turn Michaela into my own personal therapist for this discussion. I loved all of her advice, and she has such a warm and interesting way of describing things. So we get into the secret to making a relationship last, We discuss why you don't need to have a perfect relationship. We talk about figuring out your attachment style and how to find security in a relationship, even if you're anxious. And we get into the vitally important component that's missing from our relationships with other people and often with ourselves as well. So this is a great podcast for you. If you're in a relationship, even if you're single, these tools and ideas can still apply to future relationships or other sorts of relationships in your life. I'd also love to invite you over to my website, karma-u.com. I've got loads of different resources for you on there for anxiety and confidence. So if you head over there, karma-u.com, you're going to find buttons that you can click to download some of the free resources that I offer. So let's get into the interview with Michaela Thomas. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such an honour. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I've been reading your book and taking so much from it. And um, But yeah, could we start off? Could you, could you share a bit about what it is that you do and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, of course. Um, I'm Michaela Thomas and I'm a clinical psychologist and couples therapist. And that means that I help both individuals and couples, often with common mental health problems like anxiety, depression, low and self-esteem and and issues that can also arise in your relationships so I work with both and I do that in my private psychology practice the Thomas Connection and like you mentioned I'm also an author of an upcoming book called The Lasting Connection so yeah I like connection as you you might have noticed from the names there so that's what I do and I've been in the UK for about 10 years now I'm originally from Sweden where I trained as a psychologist 
and I've done further qualifications in the UK as well with the background of working in the NHS, but now I work fully private for just for myself. Amazing. Can you share what you mean by pause, purpose, play? I know that's the name of your podcast and it's something that you talk about in the book. But yeah, could you just share a bit about what that what that means? Yeah, of course. Um, it's actually, if I'm really honest, it's not something that's completely brand new. I've just packaged evidence-based practices into a framework that I call pause, purpose, play. Because over the last sort of decade or so that I've been working with high-striving and mission women, put a lot of pressure on themselves to be perfect. I realized that some of the evidence-based methods actually felt quite off-putting, that some people who are very high striving and very busy really struggle with the concept of mindfulness, that although we know from research that's really beneficial for you to feel more calm and unwinding your mind and getting perspective, being less reactive, it's really difficult for people who have maybe even perfectionistic tendencies to give themselves the permission to slow down to permission to pause so i built that into the framework that that's what pause means for me and it doesn't have to mean just seated meditations and coming into stillness if you're not ready to do so yet so i teach women to then find some permission for slowing down you know if you're living your life in the fast lane it's going to be really difficult to give yourself the permission to pause so we work quite a lot of tolerating that tolerating the sensation of being still and all the things that might come up when you're actually starting to come to stillness. It'd be through seated meditations or through just going for a slow walk, um, gazing out the window, reading a book, all of these kind of slower activities can give rise to lots of critical thoughts like I'm not doing enough, I'm not achieving things, I should be doing something worthwhile, a lot of shoulds and musts and rules to show up. So I started building this framework to help these women to pause for long enough to realize what actually really matters to them, which is hard to do when you're living your life in the fast lane and very busy. So actually be connecting with your purpose, with what is meaningful to you, what things you find really passionate about and doing more of those things rather than doing things in a way that's just following rules and expectations of others or expectations you might have placed on yourself from an early age. And once you can connect with that purpose and what feels passion, uh, passionate for you, you can then move forward again, pressing the play button, moving forward with your life, maybe in a different direction, maybe doing less of the business and doing more of the things that brings you joy and pleasure and, you know, connection with others. So the playfulness for me is a lot about fun, but also about allowing yourself to be more flexible in life and not just being so rule governed. So that's why I created the framework Pause Purpose Play that are used both with high striving individuals as well as with couples. Because if you can't give yourself the permission to pause and you're constantly busy as a couple, when are you gonna see each other? How are you gonna have any fun? How are you gonna think about what really matters to you and what you wanna do more of? And how are you gonna find those elements of joy and connection and closeness? So that's why I created that framework because it makes it a little bit more palatable. It's memorable. Anything that's an alliteration is quite easy to remember. And that's the name of my podcast, as well as my Facebook group for people who want to maybe slow down in a way that feels purposeful to them. So, so good. It's, it's so interesting thinking of the idea that mindfulness for, for certain types of people is going to be like the hardest thing or the worst thing. One I can imagine, and I know I've done this as well, you know, you beat yourself up for not being good enough at meditation. And oh, yeah then that just spirals and it becomes like a torturous thing that you beat yourself up about or just really don't enjoy. So yeah, I like that idea of just finding maybe other ways or 
teaching it as a practice to sit with that discomfort in itself mm. it makes so much sense um and yeah I love that that can also apply to our you know relationships as well and yeah I'm sure lots of people listening maybe have experienced extreme busyness of parenting and working and homeschooling and all sorts of things going on that might need this more than ever right now mm, absolutely do, it's do been you a think hard it, year in that sense yeah yeah I wanted to ask you, so I'm hoping that you have the secret <laughs> to what makes relationships last. Is there a secret in your view? Do lots of people ask you that? Do people kind of assume or ask you if you have a perfect relationship and if you've kind of, you've got this kind of secret source that you can share, like it's that simple? Mm, absolutely. I mean, I guess there's two questions in one there. What is the secret to a lasting connection? And secondly, is there such a thing as a perfect connection or perfect marriage? And do am I in one? And I think I'm very open about that in my book that I'm certainly not in a perfect relationship because they do not exist. If you are feeling that everything is perfect in your relationship, my my guess would be that you haven't weathered the storm just yet. You know, I've, I once met a couple at a wedding fair that I was talking to uh, couples about, you know, marriage preparation and how to kind of enter this next chapter of your life. And I met this couple that said, you know, actually, we're perfect for each other. We won't need any of your support because we've been together for three years and we've never argued. And I just wish them good luck with your, with your upcoming marriage because you're going to be in for a treat um, if you've not yet had any single arguments over three years because that meant that probably one of you or both of you is people-pleasing and maybe actually holding back what you truly want or need because odds are that you're not going to be compatible on all points. You're not going to agree on every single thing. And if you're constantly aiming for perfection, meaning we never argue, then actually that's not a healthy relationship that is someone is holding back. So no, I'm not in a healthy, I'm in a healthy relationship. I'm not in a perfect relationship, which means that we can tolerate a storm. We can tolerate disagreements. We can tolerate fights. And in the book, I talk about, you know, exhibit A, you know, the hat rack fight of 2014, where I end up sleeping on the sofa because I'm so fuming about what height the hat rack in our new hallway is going to be put up at. And that's, you know, that's, that's a couple therapists with all the skills I have. And I still do these silly things because we are human, because our emotions get the better of us, because we get too head up in the heat of the moment and sometimes hard to think straight and use proper skills. So this will, this will happen to everyone. So no, I don't have a perfect relationship. And the secret source um, in the book, I also talk about an example where, where I got this idea for writing the book in the first place, where I was on a bus um, down from Bangkok airport um, on the way to Hua Hin, which is like a four hour car journey after I was really jet lagged. And I was talking for a couple of hours with a fellow psychologist about relationships and couples and love and what it all meant. And then she said, after I've been speaking about this for two hours and I was just on the verge of falling asleep, she asked me, so what is the secret? You know, what is a lasting connection? And I said, um, basically, if you can own your own shit and you can tolerate your partner's shit, you got a pretty good start. And obviously I put it a bit more eloquently now that it's about actually taking ownership and responsibility for your own shortcomings and your flaws because you're human. You're going to have things that aren't great, that are great on your partner. And then having some acceptance of who they are with all their shortcomings and tolerating some of that coming up, then you got a pretty good start for being able to build a lasting connection between you because you can tolerate when things get difficult, when some of those less fine moments of theirs or yours shows up. So that's kind of how I think about it. Love that. 
the, the, the phrase owning your shit always makes me laugh yeah. <laughs> but yeah it's true isn't it I remember I posted something about something that I was doing to try and work on my my relationship a while ago and someone dm'd me and said I don't think I should have to you know do anything to change for my partner you know I think he should just accept me as I am and I don't know yeah what would you say to someone that that thinks that for example oh yeah that's a meaty one it's a fine balance there of how I, I think of the serenity prayer there of how we kind of want to find the balance between you know Accepting what is and changing what we can and, and I think it's that wisdom to know the difference you know actually what can I change and taking the responsibility to change those things you know to use a silly example you know my husband uh, has realized that I put my tops inside out because I pull them up up over my head and just put them in the laundry basket and then when he folds them he has to put them the right way back around again and I didn't realize I did this. And when he pointed it out, I've then been trying to make a point of when I take my top off in the evening, tells you something about the sexiness of our relationship. Like, look, I'm taking my top off the right way, putting it in the laundry basket. And all it takes is it's a silly thing. It's about sort of the little things that we do to show our partner that we make efforts. I've heard you, I've listened to you, I validate you that this is a valid point and I'm doing my very best to work on it. That does not mean that I'm going to expect myself to never, ever put a top the wrong way around in the laundry basket ever again. That's unrealistic expectations and pressures. And that also means that the partner I married is someone who wouldn't go off on one if he then occasionally finds the top the wrong way around. That we have made that atmosphere of compassion and understanding so that we can tolerate each other's flaws, but also have an expectation that when I ask you to work on something, try to make an effort to do so so that's the balance where I think yes we do need to accept each other and ourselves but that does not mean that we don't get carte blanche for never doing anything about our annoying kind of little traits because we all have them right so mm. I hope that that makes sense that the person who dm'd you I guess maybe needs to do a little bit of the inner work around how we constantly improve we are constantly growing as as humans our brains are still malleable we can still change things and create new neural pathways and if I believe that people couldn't change I'd be out of a business you know as a psychologist my job is to help people change so I do truly believe that no you do have to change but you can't change your partner you can't make your partner change you can only take ownership of changing your own things and that's why it starts with you it starts by owning the, the difficulties you have making your best efforts not perfect but giving yourself a break when you're also working on things, it's going to take some time to lay down new foundations and keep talking to your partner about that and say, no, I know that you want me to work on this. I'm doing my very best. And consistently having that dialogue about the things you're changing, the things you're accepting. I hope that that mm. makes sense. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And I was, just, I was almost like laughing to myself at one point because I was remembering my boyfriend said well he never leaves he never puts the lids on things and he says it's genetic that <laughs> <laughs> you can't put the lids on things because his mom and his dad and his dad do it and I was like no you're just not making enough of an effort and that's a silly I think that's probably more modeled that's covering. probably more learned behavior yeah. than than genetic muscle memory <laughs> so genetic. But, yeah it's probably not genetic um and it's, I guess we then have choice as well of how much does that irritate you can mm. is it livable you know is this is this something that's for me 
a quirk that's a bit annoying. Like my husband makes a funny noise when he chews and it's a bit of a vocal tick and he doesn't notice at all. That it sounds like uh, 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 when he eats. So sometimes when I'm stressed, <laughs> my my tolerance for that goes down. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when he's stressed, the the frequency of that goes up. So if we're both stressed, then that grates on me. But it's not going to be the thing that I end our marriage over. So we have to really think about what's a non-negotiable here. What's kind of mm-hmm. utter deal breaker that... You know, could you live with the fact that he puts the lids on a little bit wonkily? Or, you know, is it about how we constantly raise an issue and it doesn't get uh, fixed? It doesn't get addressed. Mm. It's maybe a bit more about that, that when you don't make the effort, it leaves me feeling like I don't matter to you. And that's the big one to communicate that actually when you don't do the things I ask you to do, it makes me feeling like you don't see me, like I don't yeah. mean as much to you. Um, as I would like so it's more about that it's not really about the lids or the socks or the noises or whatever we talk about it's much more about what meaning and attribution we give to that what kind of is underneath the surface yeah absolutely yeah and I know just to pick up bottles of chili sauce by the not by the lid it's all all sorted grab them sturdily yeah yeah I'm going to try not to turn this podcast into my own personal counseling session (laughs) move on to the next question that's okay (laughs) I I wanted to know a bit more about attachment theory I know you touched on this in the book it's something that I've heard quite a few people talking about now it's kind of a a term that is you know a psychological term that's kind of gone mainstream that more and more people are kind of hearing about can you can you share about what that is and is it something that we can change or is it something that we're kind of we're stuck with Well, we still need more research on this, but there's been some promising articles coming out that actually with the use of compassion training, as in training yourself to be more kind and compassionate with yourself and with others, there's been some interesting results showing that we can soften our attachment style um, and not make it be so so rigid and not feel so follow and like we have to follow... um, the behaviors that we've we've learned through our early childhood so it make more sense maybe if i explain a little hi this is craig robinson from ways to win and support for this podcast comes from invesco qqq invesco qqq is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. About the different attachment styles and why we have attachment. So this is to do with how our caregivers, often parents, but it might have been grandparents or other caregivers, have acted towards us. And if they provide us with a kind of a, a secure base to stand on so that when little children go out into the world and exploring it, do they have a safe haven to return back home to? You know, the little child might look over the shoulder and see if mommy or daddy or grandparent is still there and how we then relate to them and their anxieties and their insecurities if we go, yes, yes, go ahead, it's okay, you can do this. And we have a kind of a soft tone of voice and then an encouraging smile and that kind of facial expression that says, I believe in you, yes, yes, go ahead. Then we can more likely to develop a more of a secure attachment that we feel strong enough and safe enough in itself to venture out almost like a little bungee cord that you venture away from your caregiver and then feel like you can come back in again and they will meet their meet your needs when you return. If you've had a scary experience, they will provide you with comfort and nurture to help you heal that experience as a young child. Now, if your parent is giving you a bit more of a fear face, like, oh, no, don't do that. Oh, it's not going to go well. Um, it might be that you then internalize that experience of not believing in yourself, doubting yourself, maybe having worst case scenarios pop up. And, and what if this is going to happen? Or oh, watch out this. Oh, you could hurt yourself. And, you know, that's a well-meaning thing that the parents do. So I don't want to say to parents to not tell your children to be fearful of things that, like, you know, don't cross the street without looking. We do need to tell them these things. It's all about balance. It's all about how much we meet them on average. So if you've had that experience when you enter into the world, also that you can be a little bit more anxious. You might also worry, is your, is your caregiver going to be there? Is someone going to be there and meet you with nurture and support when you need it? Um, and that will have an impact on relationships because when you then grow up, you might have a strong need for seeking reassurance. Am I loved? Do you want to be with me? Am I attractive? Do you love me? Are you going to leave me? And it might be then very difficult because the other person might feel very strained by that if it becomes excessive, you know, beyond the normal thing of finding a safe haven, being able to lean on each other. If it goes beyond that, so that's actually driven by anxiety the other person might end up doing the very thing that you're fearful of doing. Actually, they may end up leaving you. They feel, I've had enough. I can't reassure you. I, I, it's never enough. Regardless of what I say to you, you don't think I, I love you. You don't trust me. You don't believe me. I've had enough. So the very anxious person who's anxiously attached might grow up into adulthood using these strategies to try to hold on to love and it ends up slipping through their fingers because of those strategies. So then we have the avoidantly attached person, someone who feels a bit more like independence is key. I don't want to lean on other people. I don't have a need to lean on other people. I'm actually much better on my own. Um, and my friend, uh, Dr. Tracy Dalgleish talks about this as the anxiously attached person is like the wave crashing in. So it's a strong force. And the avoidantly attached person is the island. 
where actually they prefer to be on their own and the wave crashes in against the shore. So if you are an anxiously attached person through no fault of your own, this is part of how, how your upbringing has been, and you get into a relationship with an avoidantly attached person who would feel a bit smothered by this and feels like it's too much, I need space, you can have a really difficult experience where the anxious person keeps learning that I'm not good enough, people keep leaving me. And the avoidant person learns that love is just too much. I don't want it. And I'll keep having people at arm's length to protect myself. And these patterns, these cycles that we get into can really be perpetuated. Obviously, if you then meet um, um, a securely attached person, if you're quite anxious, and I, I would imagine that a lot of the people listening might be more of the anxious inclination rather than the avoidant one. Um, that's certainly my experience of the women that I support. If they are meeting someone who's more securely attached, who can actually be a solid space to say, you know, I get it. And I get that you have some stuff to work through and I'm right here. I'm, I'm not going to be able to give you reassurance all the time, but I'm able to, to see here with you when you feel anxious and you've got this. Then we've actually seen that some other anxious attachment style can be softened. And then what you get, what you're left with, so when the wave lessens a bit, you actually then end up with a partner who's very attentive, who's very caring, because they really care about you. They obviously don't want you to leave. So then you have the benefits of that, that you know, a very loving partner who makes lots of efforts. So that's that's the hopeful bit that, you know, if you recognize these things where you might actually feel like you're constantly asking for reassurance and not sure about your own worth and not feeling like you're good enough, that with the help of therapy and insight, then you can soften this and developing more compassion for yourself means that you can tolerate, maybe not always knowing, tolerate, actually, I'm not going to ask right now. I, I know, I trust my gut intuition that they do love me and asking for reassurance right now might actually make this more detrimental and make take me further away from the meaningful, deep love that I want. So I hope that that's helpful of understanding mm. a bit that none of this is our fault. This is just shaped by the way we were brought up. And we don't want to pin all this as a fault on our parents. You know, they did the best we want as well. It's more about understanding that we are, all have got a deep, innate need for nurture and belonging and leaning on each other. And a helpful, healthy term for that is interdependence, that when a couple is healthy, they can lean on each other, taking turns um, supporting each other so that there's nothing unhealthy and kind of codependent about that. I don't really use that term in therapy. I just think about it, it's actually we all have this need for nurture. Some of us have less of it because of how they've been brought up, maybe being avoidant as a way to keep themselves safe. Maybe they've been hurt by caregivers or they've learned to not trust other people. So for them, it's more about tolerating other people to come in, letting the love in. And that can be a piece of compassion work as well. So, so interesting hearing, hearing that explanation, I'm sure. Yeah, lots of people do resonate with the anxious, um, anxiously attached type, um, myself included. I've, I've been with my partner for 11 years. And when we first met, I was like a needy child in lots of ways. And mm -hmm. he luckily is a, a securely attached person and very sort of steady and very reassuring. And it helped me to feel really safe. And I think up until that point, I had pushed people away with kind of a like a neediness slash coldness. I don't know if I'd, I was doing both mm. both of the unhealthy types of attachment in one, but it was not it was not a good relationship mm. history before I met my partner. Um, so I've been lucky lucky to meet him. But so all the anxious uh, listeners need to find themselves a securely attached 
individual yeah. to, <laughs> to soften that it's side really of matters us. how we choose it really does yeah. so actually finding someone who's able to hold a mech space for you in this journey is really really important and it's yes how so how we choose we, we need to have that awareness of actually a lot of anxious women who maybe don't have the greatest sense of self-worth may if we're talking about hetero couples may seek themselves to a man who treats them badly uh who may have maybe avoidant and kind of feel like you know, I'm in, I'm in it for the sort of for the thrills, but not in for the long haul. Um, and actually, then we keep replicating a cycle of thinking I'm not worth anything. I'm not good enough. And our worth gets chipped away. So we really do need to look for the right type of person to not replicate those past patterns. And that's the bit that I talked to two couples about. Actually, how did you choose each other wisely? Not for a perfect fit. There, there is no such thing but choosing someone who you know is going to be able to make space for you rather than picking the person who's like the most thrilling, exciting person. Um, you know, I don't know what you were like when you were younger, but my sort of list of what I wanted a guy to have was, you know, to have long hair and be able to play the guitar. Like those are not, those are not the features on my, <laughs> on my shopping list <laughs> these days when I'm in my thirties, I think. Um, and it's okay to kind of acknowledge that, that looking for something thrilling is, is normal and exciting how long would it last so if you're looking for a lasting connection you do need to be a bit wiser in how you choose be good wouldn't it if there was on a date online dating profile you could just choose someone based on their attachment style do you think we should come up with that yeah well again <laughs> that's also means that we we think that maybe that's uh it doesn't take into account that it's not as set as we think that we can yeah. gravitate but yeah it's it's definitely we don't want to necessarily look out for the emotionally uh, unavailable not looking to get committed kind of guy who's after a string of one night stamps and that's okay if you're looking for that as an open connection that's fine I work with couples who've uh, polyamorous or having you know an agreement that they can be with other people that's not what I'm saying that monogamy is the only way but it's just about what do you want you know what values are important to you and finding someone who matches at least some of those values I think is the the thing about choosing wisely Mm, yeah yeah makes a lot of sense can you share a little bit about compassion and why that's so important and is it something that can sometimes be missing in in our relationships that that kind of side of it kind of gets forgotten about amongst the busyness or the arguments or the yeah those sorts of things yeah, I, th I think it has been missing, actually. It's one of those things that we're, you know, the Compassionate Mind Foundation, which is a charity that's trying to get compassion training into schools, because this is important. You know, we know that mindfulness training is being brought into some schools. We want to level that up, thinking that mindful compassion or compassionate mind training is one step further, where we're understanding that it's not just about being in the present moment. It's also being able to do something with what you find. So one compassion definition can be that it's about a sensitivity to the suffering of yourself and other people with a commitment to alleviate it and prevent its return. And what that means in, in plainer language is actually making sense of what, why you're hurting. So the, the sensitivity to, to your suffering is actually, gosh, that really hurts. No wonder that I'm feeling this way based on everything I've been through in my life. So it's a sense making, it's sort of, actually, yeah, that's, that's completely understandable. No wonder that I feel this way. And turning towards your pain and turning towards the pain in your, in your partner. And that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of uh, dedication and strength because we know that actually from interesting research around cortisol levels in the blood, so cortisol is a stress hormone that we can measure in the bloodstream. 
that when one partner is experiencing something painful and is telling the other partner about it, we know that heart rate goes up in the partner is listening and their cortisol levels go up too. And that's obviously if you have a good attunement, you have a connection where you're tuning into each other, you care about each other. So that's actually why actually sitting with your partner's pain hurts. It hurts in you. If it doesn't, you're not doing it right. Then you're not doing empathy right. You're not tuning into them enough. So that's the first part of it, actually being sensitive to their pain, but being sensitive to your own pain too. No wonder this is difficult for me right now based on what I've been through before. So that's the sense-making. Second part of the definition that's really important to hold in mind is what's going to be helpful rather than harmful for you to do right now. A lot of couples get so overwhelmed and reactive with what's going on for them that they start frantically running around in circles and adding more insults to injury. Not only are they having a problem, they're layering the problem up with self-criticism or criticism of the other person. So they, rather than saying, we as a joint team have a problem that we need to face together, they start to make each other to be the problem. And that's the bit that compassion can help us with to say, actually, as a team, what do we do about this problem? What's going to be helpful for us to do right now? How can we have a commitment to keep working on this? And that's where we think about dedication as well, that actually to think of the longevity of a relationship across the lifespan, you know, if we're talking about couples who've been together for decades, there will be hard times, there will be storms to weather. If you have a commitment to be helpful to each other, that means that you keep turning up for each other and keep turning up for yourselves. So compassion is a strong, courageous choice of doing hard things because you care about each other and because you care about yourself. So we think of it as having three parts. You know, firstly, kind of a caring commitment. You know, I do give a damn about you and I give a damn about myself. And that's the bit that a lot of high striving or anxious people miss out, that they stop. They don't start with caring about their own well-being. So if you actually do give a damn about yourself and wanting yourself to be well, then that means that you also have to get some clarity and insight and wisdom about what being well looks like and what you need to be well. What do I need to have fulfilled in this relationship for it to feel satisfying? And lastly, courage. Like I mentioned, it's a strong, courageous choice. It takes a lot of guts to be able to express to someone how you actually feel about something. So that clarity and caring commitment and courage is all rolled into one, into compassion. And if we don't have all of that, if we think of compassion just as kindness or, or just being uh, lovely towards someone else and being there for them, then we're missing out on actually the courage to say no the courage to set a boundary, to say, actually, this is not going to work out for me, or I can be there for you, but not in this way, not when you treat me like this. So courageous steps of, or even being assertive or fierce um, is a really important part of compassion as well, to say that I won't stand for this any longer. So I hope that that makes sense as well, that compassion is not a weak, fluffy choice. It's a strong, courageous thing to do. Standing tall like a mountain is a, is a phrase we often use. Yeah, I love that. And so much, yeah, so much what you were saying was interesting. But one thing you said about people, well, what I took it to mean was sometimes people don't know what they need or what they want. And I found that so, so much recently with people I've been speaking to, they don't know what their needs are in a relationship or they don't know what they need in general. And mm -hmm. even thinking about having needs seems like this ridiculous concept, like, oh, I've got needs, like how dare I have needs? Um, yeah. So yeah, is there something about getting to know what, what that, those are so we can be compassionate to ourselves or maybe we can let our partner know what it is that we need so they can be compassionate to us? 
Absolutely. And I think that starts with a reality check that as women in modern society, we have been penalized for saying we have needs. You know, that's what you have to think about this with the, you know, the hat of the patriarchy as well, that of course it's going to be difficult for you to voice your your needs and wants in your relationship if you don't know what those are so it starts with you again becoming mindful of what do i want from a fulfilling relationship how do i want to be treated you know what do i need a break right now you know do i need help with the kids do i need my partner to take a different role what, what is it that i want and need and knowing that that actually needs to come with the permission to to, to turn inwards the permission to consider your own needs and knowing that that may well trigger shame you may feel like you're self-indulgent or selfish or there might be shame-based memories from the past where that turns up especially if those uh, wants or needs are about sexual things actually what gives you pleasure what gives you fulfillment that can be really difficult especially for women but for men too um but it's something that i see much more around women struggling to communicate and their partner becoming frustrated if they then feel actually if you just tell me what you want this is a classic of like what women want thing. Um, and we see these weird rom-coms where men trying to guess. And sometimes it's hard for women to communicate that because they don't know. So this is where actually having personal therapy for yourself can help to strengthen your relationship with your partner as well. If you're able to say, you know what, I'd really like for you to do this for me. And a lot of men actually like that because it's a direct instruction and it takes away some of the mystery. You're like, what is it that she wants? What's going to make her happy? So I think we need to really strip it right back and start with that reality check that there are societal pressures on women that stops them from saying what they want. Mm, yeah, gosh. Yeah, I remember my my aunt giving me some relationship advice once and she, she'd said, she'd kind of learned this from raising her son, how there's something in, I know this is a generalisation about genders, but she said there's something in like, men that wants to please like wants to please women wants to make them happy she said she really kind of got that sense from her son and you know women could understand that more maybe about men that actually if we let them know what we want you know quite mm. often they'll be quite happy to to give us that but, yeah. and women are more socialized to nurture so that's something mm. we see role plays that girls do from a young age that they're more socialized and rewarded and reinforced when they play families etc so they're already playing with that role from an early age in the way that boys and are hoping that this is changing for the next generation to kind of get rid of some of that toxic masculinity because it's, it's going to make my job as a as a couple therapist a hell of a lot easier uh if i don't have to sort of have that uphill struggle with with men talking about their emotions talking about um vulnerable things but women have been more socialized to nurture and we still have those kind of classic terms around, you know, the mums, you know, when you think parent, you think mum, et cetera. So there's a lot of preconceived notions uh, affecting women um, that still makes it harder for them to say, I need this for myself because mm. they've been socialized to be there for others in a selfless way. So it's not selfish to express your needs. It's actually about self-care. And one of the chapters in, the, in my book is called self-care is couple care, because I strongly believe that, that when you are well, when you are topped up, when your energy isn't depleted, you are more able to do those things that might align with your values around care and support as well. But not topping yourself up so that you can be there for others, topping yourself up because you deserve to be topped up. So we have to really think that it's not a conditional statement that I need to do self-care, I need to look after myself, uh, I need to do kinder things for myself so that I'm able to just be a good mum or a good, a good wife. It's I need to look after myself because I deserve to be well. And that's the underpinning of a self-compassionate self-care, that it's not about rigid rules or how I must be. It's about 
actually everyone deserves to be well in themselves. Mm, yeah, yeah, so, so important. When it comes to self-compassion, and I know you, you talk a lot about this in the book, and one thing that you say that I think you hear a lot, and I hear a lot as well, is I'll lose my motivation if I don't beat myself up. This is yeah. like such a big thing, I think. Um, maybe it's even subconscious, but there's this sense that actually we need to be hard on ourselves because that's what helps us to grow or change or improve. But yeah, so how, how, how can we address something like that if we're, mm. if we're in, that, in that mindset? Well, I guess this is another reality check that knowing that most of us have an inner critical voice that is there to protect us. And often this sense of, you know, if I'm kinder to myself, I'll lose my motivation or I won't be productive. It's often a fear-based thing. You know, I fear becoming something that I don't want to be. I fear acting like a person I don't want to be. Like maybe I'll become lazy and complacent, uh, arrogant or a bit of an asshole. Um, so I guess when we think about those things, of course, it makes sense that your inner critic is going to try to protect you from, from stepping into that. So then they're thinking, the way to do so is to give myself a hard time. I'll just whip myself into shape. I'll, I'll keep beating myself up with this shit stick and then I'll keep performing better. But we actually know that the paradoxical findings from research is saying that actually it's the color opposite. You are able to achieve better, perform better, be more productive when you're using a carrot rather than a stick. So using self-encouragement and what we call self-corrective rather than self-critical ways of looking at yourself. So self-corrective is about growth. It's about, sometimes people are familiar with the growth mindset rather than a fixed mindset. So self-corrective is saying to yourself, that didn't go so well. What can I do to improve? What learning can I take away from this? And I want to put something in for next time to make that better so I can make changes. And that's looking at yourself with self-compassion to say, actually, no wonder that that was difficult. No wonder I'm feeling upset about it not going the way I wanted. And what can be helpful rather than harmful for me to do right now? And adding that self-criticism is actually harmful. It's harmful because you're not only experiencing a barrage of aggressiveness and attack, which just feels really uncomfortable. It's like being bullied. That feels very stressful for our bodies. We get a lot of adrenaline and cortisol as a spike of stress when we are laying into ourselves but you're also because you are on the inside of yourself you're also the person delivering that harshness that delivering the the bullying so you are both the bully and the bullied at the same time when you're criticizing yourself so that's why you like get a double whammy of stress cortisol and why it's so unhelpful for you to be able to think that you're going to be more productive because when we're stressed out when we're overwhelmed we're not likely to be able to think straight and to use our problem solving capacities of the brain so it's actually doing more harm than good to self-criticize now we can know that logically but we still need to meet our inner critic with compassion soothing it and say i get it i completely get that you're there giving me a hard time when i'm thinking i'm going to do something caring for myself of course, I'm also going to say, why be so lazy? You need to finish all your work before you go and have a bath because it's making sense of that. Where did that come from? Where does that self-critic come from? Maybe you've had experiences in your life where that made a lot of sense to beat yourself up before someone else got a chance to criticize you. Maybe that kept you safe. So we want to not be giving criticism to ourselves for having an inner critic. We want to soothe it and say, that makes sense. But what's going to be more helpful right now is to maybe encourage myself. 
So talking to your critic, maybe you know, but this is part of the training that I do with couples as well as individuals, is helping you visualize an inner critical um, character that you can talk to, you can have a different dialogue with and say, I get it. I know where you're coming from. I know what you're trying to do, trying to keep me safe from failure, from becoming things I don't want to be. But the way you're going about it is not helpful. It's actually keeping me more stuck, preventing me from stepping into the person I want to be and preventing me from sharing things vulnerably with my partner, preventing me from making changes I need to make. So I've got this and please just lead me to try to do this. So that's a a kind of way where we can address this with compassion um, and knowing that you're not going to lose your motivation. In fact, it's going to be the polar opposite. You're going to be more motivated and more purposeful and more driven and more ambitious when you're no longer drowning in your ambition. Mm, yeah, it makes so much sense. And don't don't beat yourself with a shit stick. I like Basically. that. <laughs> That's so, <laughs> <it's> brilliant. <laughs> Can you share? We started. We were talking about this a little bit before we started started recording. The wedding study, the weddings and the rings. Because I'm, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm bringing myself into this a lot. It's very pertinent to me. This episode. I am considering getting married, but don't want to have this big wedding. Don't want to have this big fuss. But there was part of me that was thinking, am I going to miss out? Am I doing myself a disservice by not putting in the effort to plan a big wedding? Um, but tell me, there was a study around this that you also mentioned in the book that's uh, mm. put, it put my mind at ease. Yeah, it is. I mean, obviously, there's no there's no clear cut of how we must be. I think it's the first thing to do is to soften any rules or shoulds there that I must have a big wedding or I should not want a big wedding. It's just more about connecting with values there. What would that mean for you? If a big wedding would mean connecting with friends and family you've not seen for a long time and it would just mean a very big celebration and it would mean the same for your partner, then well, actually, your answer is there. A big wedding is what you want. If you think more about, I wanted a small wedding because I wanted to be intimate. And, you know, I resonate with that. I had this sort of rule in my head, not a rule. I had a kind of like a, a criteria for who I wanted to invite to my wedding. And I, want, I wanted it to be walking down the, line, the aisle. I didn't want to feel like I'm looking out over the, the faces around me and not recognizing the face. That was my only criteria that I wanted to at least know who the people were who came to my wedding. And I had about, we had about 58 guests, I think. So it was quite a small wedding. So it really depends on what you want and what your partner want and how you can discuss those values. But this study, it was quite an interesting one, kind of looking at the expense of your wedding and the the cost of your wedding ring. So the bigger the rock on your, or the bigger the bling. Uh, the there was kind of an inverse relationship with with uh, satisfaction. So actually, the bigger the the bigger the the rock, the more likely to split up and feel unhappy and unsatisfied in your relationship. So no, it's not big. The bigger the better. There's maybe a little bit less is more. But that's not about just how much you spend on the wedding. It's actually maybe you weren't then connected with those couples in the studies were maybe not connected to what really matters. Why are we doing this? Why are we promising these things? Why are we setting these value or these vows to each other? Who do we want to invite? Um, so I think it's just starting there and, and really reflecting on what's this next chapter of our lives going to look like? How is marriage different to uh, a long-term committed relationship? And that, that's the bit that I think is quite reassuring that we set up the rules. We decide what, what relationship we want and what goes for us. And it doesn't really matter what the, the common norm is. Yeah, yeah, that definitely put my mind at ease. And I, I, yeah, I like what you say that actually, you know, obviously we're all different, 
but perhaps for people who've been putting pressure on themselves that they need to have it a certain needs to be big then maybe it's you know it doesn't so it needs to be perfect I mean that's we we even have magazines called perfect wedding magazines and they are meant to create FOMO. So, you know, that's even thing. one of the things I hear from you is that maybe I'll miss out on something if I don't have a big mm. wedding and, and maybe I don't have all the stuff, you yeah. know, all those details that we see sort of beautifully captured. And that's because there's, there's a wedding industry. There's lots of people who provide great services in the wedding industry. But if that's not what matters to you, then leave that, leave all of it. So that's, that's the kind of thing that I often talk about how beyond the perfect wedding day, uh, quote unquote perfect lies a good enough marriage that it's the journey beyond that day that really is where your long-term relationship and marriage starts not what you do on that one day as a as a kind of final uh, point although I could talk to you for hours and hours about all these topics are there any practices that couples can do or indeed maybe you could do it with family members or friends I don't know um but couples can do to connect more. I think of, of connection as something that is like a, like a bind, you know, it's, it's a bond that we bind with someone. So obviously connection isn't just about connecting with your partner. I mean, my company is called the Thomas connection because I believe firmly that we also connect to ourselves. We can connect to our experiences. We can connect to our bodies. Um, there's a lot of things we can do that is about creating a bond But when we think about it in terms of couples, I think one of the things we want to do is to to allow yourselves to have a partial overlap, that to connect deeply. You don't have to have a full overlap. Um, For anyone who's who's watching a video, I can show what I mean with this. Actually, sometimes people think that to be deeply connected and compatible, you have to be completely the same, have the same interests, be completely compatible and overlapping. Whereas what we know from research is actually having a partial overlap so that still space for you, still space for your partner, and still some overlap between you. That's what I think is a good connection. If you have no overlap whatsoever and you're completely two different circles, then you'll be pulling in different directions and you will never feel like you're overlapping. You don't share any joint values or interests and you're almost like living different lives at the same address. So that's where we think about actually a bind is a connection, something that we can pull on and stretch on and it can tolerate that you know if you do some maintenance on your connection maintenance on your relationship looking after it to make it feel um, nurtured and supple and well it can tolerate pulling a little bit on it without it snapping and that's where I think of 2020 has been you know one giant pull on our relationship if you have maintained your relationship and you keep talking which is kind of one of the top things for me me to recommend to people to do is to keep opening up about how you think and how you feel what's important to you, what you're fearing at the moment, what your dreams are, what your hopes are. Keep getting to know each other. Keep talking about how you feel right now. Then you can keep updating uh, almost like a, a map of each other. So keep updating the territories on those maps to keep that connection strong. And that goes obviously for friendships as well. If you don't haven't chatted to a friend for a few years, it's going to take some catching up to fill in the gaps of what you don't know, because all of us grow and change. You change, you adapt, you're dynamic, and so is your partner. So that's the thing that we have to keep getting to know them. So communication, talking to each other, but also in order to have a deeper connection is about being vulnerable. If you're not open and honest with how you really feel authentically, then and you're aiming to just have this perfect facade, then it will limit how deep that connection can go because we're more likely to connect with someone who is imperfect. We find them more likable than we do with someone who is completely flawless. 
So yeah, keep talking, keep opening up, keep getting to know each other and be vulnerable. Amazing. Thank you so much for everything you shared. Where can people buy your book and find out more about what you offer and what, what else you've got on at the moment? Sure. Um, you can go to Amazon or Waterstones or any of the big booksellers uh, and look for The Lasting Connection, which is a book on how to develop, develop love and compassion, not just for your partner, but also for yourself. So you can find that and it's on, available on pre-order right now and it's out on February 11th, so very, very soon. And you can also find more information about me on my website for thethomasconnection.co.uk where I'll be putting up some uh, resources around the, um, the upcoming couples course I've got, which is an eight-week course developing love and compassion for yourself and your partner called The Compassionate Couple. So yeah, just drop me an email if you want to chat more to me about any of these resources. You can also join my Facebook group called Pause Purpose Play or tune into my podcast, which is Pause Purpose Play. So that's where you find me. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a right honor to talk to you and uh, getting to know lots of things about your relationship as well. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Brotheridge. Don't forget, you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.